Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. In this family, it's the scientists versus the artists. Sammy's on my team, takes after me. What kind of movie are we going to make? In The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg revisits the contentious childhood that inspired him to become the world's most successful director. We've got a review. We'll also review The Eternal Daughter from director Joanna Hogg, whose own autobiographical films, The Souvenir Parts 1 and 2, are among the most acclaimed releases of the last couple of years. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. As we record this, Josh, it's not quite December yet, but it will be when this show airs, which means that we are entering the season of feverishly watching movies in time to complete our Chicago Film Critics Association ballots. Were you able to use the long Thanksgiving weekend to catch up on some movies to get some of that homework done, or are you going to be scrambling like I am? Well, I'll be scrambling. I was a bad bad critic adam did not watch a single title over the break my only excuse is we were traveling went out to new york city to have thanksgiving where our daughters going to school friends who live nearby second year we've been able to do that it's a very fun trip so yeah we were hanging out with people we were going to the museum of natural history hit the museum of modern art what else did we do we caught i think the last two floats in the macy's parade we were a little late on that one so we were very much out and about not a lot of time to watch movies so i gotta buckle down here in the next week or so all right so maybe not a good critic but good dad and husband you chose family over art josh this week i tried later in the show we'll report on some of the watching josh got done prior 
to Thanksgiving break. Thoughts on Joanna Hogg's The Eternal Daughter with Tilda Swinton in a dual role. First, though, we did want to take a moment to ask for a little bit of help. No heavy lifting here, just some help spreading the word about the show. We see the stats all the time. Josh, more people are listening to podcasts than ever before. We still are always seeking new listeners. Even a show that's been around as long as ours has needs to continue to grow. And the best way for that to happen is for people to get a recommendation, a personal recommendation from a friend or family member. So we've just got a simple request this week. Tell somebody about film spotting or take another step. Hey, do both. Tell somebody about film spotting and then just take a second to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. That's where the bulk of our listeners still come from. Really a sentence or two about what you've appreciated about the show and then that star rating. It does help quite a bit. It does. And we do want to thank some folks who followed up on my request last week, Josh, and took the time to go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a positive rating and share some kind words. Hazy L, I'm going to go with. Jason Hensley, our friend Bianca in New York City, plus someone who said they prefer to be unnamed. That's fine. You don't have to leave your real name over on Apple Podcasts. Just leave us a real sentiment, Josh. And that's what we got. Thank you to everyone who did that. And now, Josh, on with the show. Well, Adam, anytime we get to talk Spielberg, it is a good show. Let's discuss The Fablements. You dismiss what he does. It's playful or imaginative. You could afford to be a little encouraging. She should have been the concert piano player. What she got in her heart is what you got. You can't just love something. You also have to take care of it. It's more important than your hobby. Can you stop calling it a hobby? It's long been widely accepted that Steven Spielberg's films are heavily autobiographical, regardless of how divorced from the reality of the director's own life the movies seem to be. You know, movies about touching or terrifying connections with extraterrestrials, brutal World War II battles, charismatic counterfeiters, and Nazi-punching archaeologists in search of otherworldly artifacts. My use of the word divorced there was very much intentional, of course, as production designer Rick Carter whose work on The Fablemans was his 11th collaboration with Spielberg, told IndieWire, the core of the Spielberg code is the splintering of the family unit, characters chasing their dreams or venturing into fantastical realms to escape their home life or restore a lost connection. The Fablemans follow Spielberg's stand-in, Sammy, as he and his three sisters navigate being uprooted from New Jersey to Phoenix to Northern California and the no longer ignorable rifts developing in the relationship between their brilliant, science-obsessed father, played by Paul Dano, and their more dramatic, occasionally erratic, arts-minded mom, played by Michelle Williams. Walking into the theater, I figured, if Spielberg has shown a penchant for weaving the trauma of his parents' split into his stories, then he'll do the counter as well. Weave his movies into the story of his parents' split, right? I won't proclaim to hold the complete list, but I certainly wasn't disappointed. Perhaps it's an all-too-obvious and superficial movie geek place to start our conversation, Josh, asking you to tell me which Spielberg movie reference, homage, Easter egg in The Fablemans was your favorite, but surely it would be fitting if focusing on such specific movie-making choices set us on the path toward illuminating greater truths, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's a game... So many people are likely playing Adam. You can see the temptation to go that route. I got to say, 
I don't know if this is just the way my mind operates or I think what it actually more is a testimony to how good and riveting this movie is, The Fablemans is, that I was so engrossed by this specific family's story, I did not find myself playing that game mm-hmm. all that much during the movie. Now, of course, things flashed in front of me and checked one of those boxes, and I can give you one. I can play along here, and it's probably the most obvious one, but given that E.T. the Extraterrestrial is my favorite Spielberg film, maybe it makes sense that when those kids, when Sammy and his friends, fittingly, I think this is in Phoenix at this point, get on their bikes. Mm -hmm. I think they're going to go ride to a makeshift film set that is out in the desert beyond their houses, and it's essentially the ET shot, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're waiting. You're almost waiting for them to actually lift off the ground. <laughs> That's the one that I got a little smile from. And at the same time, it was a smile, but also, uh, oh, maybe you didn't have to do that because it did exactly what I was talking about. It slightly pulled me out of the moment. Now, I don't think that's a fault overall of the film. I think you could easily get lost and distracted if you did want to come out of there with a the complete list and show it to everybody. But I think the movie is strong enough and powerful enough and engrossing enough as its own independent tale that it doesn't rely on that. So it's there. The movie doesn't need it. I think that's all to its credit. So I went with the bikes in E.T. Did you have a favorite or or the, the one that uh, you thought worked the best in the movie? Maybe I noted a few of them, and I do have one that I would consider my favorite. First, I'll say that I agree with you. Easter eggs probably is an appropriate term for these moments because they add to the experience. They're nice to have. They're fun to talk about. But you said it. The movie doesn't rely on these references at all. And if it did, I don't think the Fablemans would be as rich of an experience as it was. I don't know if this is overt or not or intended, but it reminded me of it. There's a moment, and I'm not as good of a note taker as you, Josh, as I've lamented many times. So I don't have all the details right, but there's a moment early on when we see the youngest version of Sammy right after he's gone to the movies for the first time. This is how the movie opens. His parents are taking him to see the greatest show on earth. And I think it's either in the car or it's back in his room as he's come home and he's still sort of basking in the metaphorical glow of this film that also has given him some tremendous anxiety and the literal glow. There's a, a yellow shade that comes across his face at one point that reminded me of that yellowness that we see so memorably in close encounters of the third kind. And yes, of course I noted the boys on bikes from ET. How about when he's moved to Phoenix And I think this is how we meet him after they've moved to Phoenix. It comes right before the bike scene. They're in their Boy Scout uniforms and they're out in the desert and they're capturing scorpions and everything about how that plays out plays out like the beginning of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, that's a good one, too. And you mentioned to go back to when he was younger. So he's played there at that point, I think, by Gabriel LaBelle. But the younger Sammy, played by Matteo Zorian Francis DeFord, you mentioned the color that is across his face. How about Mm -hmm. that kid's eyes? I know. The blue eyes, which also, I don't know if this is really an Easter egg, but it made me think of another color from Close Encounters, those alien beams and the blue. That, like, maybe that's exactly why the kid was cast, because his eyes are so perfectly matched 
to the colors in Close Encounters. So there is so, so much of that stuff. There, there are. And I'll give you my favorite here. It's another Close Encounters reference, or seems to me surely a Close Encounters reference. They're still in New Jersey. In fact, they're just dealing with the fact that they're going to move. And the family is trying to reconcile this news and decide that it is, in fact, the right thing for the family to do. There's some anxiety about this and some fear. And a tornado occurs. And Michelle Williams' mom gathers the kids in the car and they start chasing this thing down. And they come to an intersection. And as they sit there at the intersection, the rain starts pouring. The wind really starts swirling. And a bunch of random things happen, including in one moment as they're sitting there paused and silent, some grocery carts just run right across the street as if they were cars that someone was driving. Those scoot in front of the car going through the intersection. And everything about that reminded me, of course, of the first Roy Neary <laughs> encounter with the aliens on the railroad tracks mm. in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where everything is going haywire in that moment and the mailboxes for example you know right. all start to act up the grocery carts to me seem like a reference to those mailboxes and that great scene well and they're also looking up through the windshield too like mm -hmm. Dreyfus is right at what's yep. above them so that's at play as well so yes all of this is fun and well handled well placed within the larger narrative but I think it could also suggest if someone hasn't seen the movie that this is sort of a, not generic, but this is a pointed love letter, not only to the movies, but to Spielberg's movies in particular. And I don't think that's what The Fablemans is as all. I liked the inversion you did in the setup there and, and talking about wanting to, you know, see how, even though the family's at the forefront, how the movie, the movies themselves can come through. The fantastic can come through. But man, is this family at the forefront. This mm -hmm. is what the movie is so concerned with. And then the key for me is that there's still that love for movies by rooting it in the details of how movies get made because Sammy is a budding filmmaker. So it's almost as if Spielberg is not telling this story to tell his story, his personal experience of becoming a filmmaker. It's that having a child filmmaker in this family is the best way to capture their story. I don't know if that distinction is coming is coming through, but that's the way I saw this. this they set out to make a movie about a family that is on a, a specifically Jewish family on this professional, artistic, and emotional journey across mid-century America. They go from New Jersey to California, and along the way, the distances start to spread among them as a family. The distances between them and America as their neighbors become increasingly waspy in strange and alienating ways. And so to chart all of that experience, which is what this film is primarily concerned with, that's what I'm trying to say. This film is not primarily concerned with how one becomes a filmmaker and how wonderful movies are no. and how we all love them and specifically how we all love Spielberg's movies. This film is concerned with a particular family's splintering and the best way to tell it 
is by having one of the characters be a filmmaker and then having that person's interests rooted in the tactile things, aspects of filmmaking, something like, you know, threading the reel of film through a projector. The attention the Fablemans pays to that sort of stuff pays off so well because it captures it captures how movies are made. And then we come to love them through that practicality, which is very different than the sort of generic, sentimental, aren't movies wonderful? We all go and look up at the screen, the light beams on us. And don't get me wrong, there are shots of that here. And it just solves all the world's problems. That's not this movie no. at all. No, it is much more interested in not only exploring the family dynamic, but also exploring how movies can help us get at some of these larger truths, but it doesn't do it in an overly simplified way. I actually think it really is respectful of the complexities of these dynamics and of these human beings. And in that way, it isn't just this simple love letter to cinema. I think you're exactly right. And you talk about the craft and the attention to detail. How about a moment like the one where she is performing in the living room. Their mother is a piano player, someone who we understand has sacrificed her artistry, has decided to be a mother, but clearly has this gift. And she is playing in the living room of the house. The kids are all watching. She's gearing up for a performance. She says something about performing on TV and they note her fingernails are too long. And so you're hearing the clicking sound of her nails on the ivories and that's actually distracting or it's taking away from the music itself and the audience in this case the family can't exactly just swoon because at least a few of them are distracted by that and you can be distracted by things like that that is part of art and in this case playing the piano is this very tactile thing how about a moment to josh in terms of observation and that trained eye of a young filmmaker. There's a really moving scene, kind of harrowing scene where the whole family is gathered in a hospital. Oh yeah. I know the shot you're going to talk about because her mother is dying and we know what's coming based on how Spielberg trains his camera with Janusz Kaminski, his cinematographer. It's from the point of view of Sammy and the camera, his eyes are trained on her neck He's noticing that she's breathing, that there's there's blood still pumping. And as the camera holds, you know, and he knows, I think, that at some moment that's going to stop. And that's how he knows before his mother does, before anyone else in the room does, that the mom is actually passed in that moment because he's used to looking for those kinds of things. He's using his eyes the same way he would use a camera, the same way Spielberg is using the camera there. Yeah, and that's another example of how crucial it is that this character be a filmmaker to provide this portrait for us. And I think that also speaks to what is really good about LaBelle's performance here as the teen Sammy. It's it's a tough role in that he's he's the observer, right? He's the aspiring filmmaker. He's there to see. And so that could somewhat sideline him or make him uninteresting. And I think LaBelle is able to, he's compelling enough to to register as this individual who we want to be invested in personally. I think it's because there's a lot of generosity to his performance. And this stood out to me in the later sequence, by the time they get to California, Sammy's in high school now, and he meets this girl, Monica, played by Chloe East. 
And they have such a wonderful dynamic in probably the funniest section of the film where she is, um, she is religiously strange, shall we say. She invites Sammy back to her bedroom and he finds that her room, the wall is plastered with portraits of Jesus, all mixed in with like celebrity pinups of different men. And then over her bed is this crucifix that's encircled by candles in the shape of a heart. I mean, Sammy's just looking at all this, not knowing what to say. I think he he questions it a little bit. And that's when we get a line I never expected to get in a Spielberg movie. Jesus is sexy uh-huh. is what she offers. Jesus is sexy. Isn't that like a sin or something? I don't know. He came to us as a man, a handsome young man. He could have come as a girl or an old man, or someone with leprosy, but... Nobody knows what he really looked like. Probably he looked like you. Oh, because because he was... Jewish. My handsome Jewish boy. Just like you. Chloe East playing Monica is very good, I think. she She's able to... She's very funny, but doesn't tip into caricature. But LaBelle in these scenes is so generous in allowing her to take the spotlight and plays off her so well. And I think that's the difficulty of this part that he manages, even when he's projecting his movies for various audiences. Yes, the camera is on him, but he has to do a lot of quiet acting because this is not a kid who's doing it for the applause or the rewards. He's doing it because he has to. In a way, it's his method of surviving. So it's a very interior, though it's a central role, it's somewhat of a passive one. And I think LaBelle, for all that, you don't want to take your eyes off him when he's on screen. No, you're right. I think all the incarnations of Spielberg here are good. And I think we can maybe talk about some of the other performances, in particular, Dano and Michelle Williams. But We were talking about Spielberg references specifically in the film. I want to talk about two others that stood out to me, one in particular that speak to what we're describing about this film in terms of it not oversimplifying any aspect of these relationships or what it's trying to say about cinema and art. I don't want to give anything away about the scene, but later in the film, there's a crucial scene where the way Sammy shoots and edits something and someone in particular provokes a really emotional response from that person. And here it's the Jewish kid, Sammy, who's been maligned and attacked for his Jewishness, aping on screen Lenny Riefenstahl. (laughs) I'm watching these glorious slow motion athletic shots, Josh, going, that's That's Olympia. Now, I don't think we're supposed to believe that Sam Fableman knows that he's copying Lenny Riefenstahl, but Steven Spielberg obviously does. And we're seeing as pure a celebration of a physical specimen that you could imagine. And in both cases, it's a perfect Aryan physical specimen. Blonde hair, blue eyes as can be. Straight out of central casting. It's notable for me because of the irony of it, the incongruity of it. But I think it's important, too, because it would be easy to watch this movie and think that what Spielberg wants us to take away is something a little trite, maybe a little hollow, the power of art to reveal the truth. Think about the standout sequence in this film. 
and one of the standouts of the mm. entire cinematic year mm-hmm. where the mom is performing. She's playing some music in the house. The father is listening while working at the table. And in this moment, Sammy is scrutinizing his footage in a very, here's the other reference, in a very Antonioni-like way. He's he's watching this footage, and he's finding little clues that are adding up to a larger story, and a story that he really doesn't want to know, but now he has to confront. And once he's confronted it, he really can't go back, and maybe the family can never go back. So watching the footage is revealing something that has been up until this point unrevealed. It's been this secret. So the film is capturing the truth. Except it's it's not the truth. It's a truth. It's not the whole truth. It it doesn't capture the entire complexity of Mitzi, the mother's relationship and feelings for her husband, Bert. Similarly, Olympia <laughs> reveals a truth about physical prowess and athleticism that we can appreciate while also being completely dishonest, right? And we learn in the aftermath of this encounter after showing this footage that the image that Sammy had rendered in his film doesn't encompass the entire truth about the person he put up on screen either. So the movie, I think, wants to reckon in a very meaningful way with the idea that cinema, like any art form, can be powerful. It can be revealing. It can be magical, perhaps, but it never does tell the entire story. Or it can be just as dishonest as it is honest. I'm in complete agreement that that sequence of Sammy putting together the home movie from their camping trip is the Bravura sequence of this film of, as you said, one of them of the year. And what I love about it goes back to the emphasis on the practicalities of filmmaking, not the emotional or even intellectual effects of movies. It's on, as you said, the editing. He's working at his editing machine, selecting which images, and this is mirrored by the editing and image selection that's being done on the level of Spielberg and his editors here, Sarah Brochard and Michael Kahn. So we have essentially these three pieces, right? We have Sammy working. We have his mother playing the piano, as you said. Then we have his father in the same room as his mother, though they're shot separately, listening and in this state of bliss, just listening to mm-hmm. his wife play the piano. So at first, we're parallel cutting among images of contentment, domestic contentment. And Sammy is at work in something he loves. His mother is performing something she loves, and the father's enjoying listening to her That's while right. he's immersed something in he his loves, paperwork. Appreciating her. Yes, and appreciating her at the same time. And then, as you said, the suspense starts to kick in. How? By the image selection on both levels, Sammy and Spielberg and his editors, and the pacing of the editing that is going back and forth. So it's just ingenious, but subtle, rooted in the practicalities of filmmaking that then leads the way to the emotional and intellectual implications. And mm-hmm. I think that's the the trick that um, that the Fablemans ultimately does pull off. You know, it's interesting to think about the impetus for making that home movie of the camping trip. It comes from Bert, his father, who previously has dismissed at this point, by the, t- by the point Sammy's a teen, filmmaking is a hobby. It's a waste. It's not going to lead to a good job, right? And yet, when Mitzi falls into a depression after her mother's death, who does he turn to? to help with the situation. Instinctively, he goes to Sammy and says, "Those that footage you took of our trip, could you compile it into a movie? 
he knows art will help her. So mm-hmm. he, it's almost like he can't admit it on an intellectual level, but in that deeper level, he knows this is what she needs for Sammy to pursue his art. And I think another, you know, that ties to another thing that this movie is deeply interested in that was very challenging to me. You joked about it at the top of this show is this question of what are you willing to sacrifice to pursue something you're passionate about? Say art of some kind. You could apply it to any field, really, that someone is passionate about. It's a recurring thing. You talked about Mitzi giving up her piano career to have the family. But then she makes other choices that sacrifice the family. Bert makes choices clearly to sacrifice the family. Sammy eventually starts to do the same as filmmaking becomes more of a passion for him. So this movie also registered to me a little bit as a confession on Spielberg's part or just the question, you know, what what are we willing to do? And even a question of like, is a shared life possible if you're this intensely passionate about something? Yeah. I mean, I think the movie offers an answer, at least for Sammy. Um, I don't know how much that reflects Spielberg, but it's also a question it forces us to consider, especially those of us who, I don't know, are passionate about doing a movie podcast that takes a lot of time or something like that. Did you did you find kind of this to be provocative in, in that way? For sure. I think the moment where that becomes most explicit is the scene where Judd Hirsch shows up as the mom's uncle, the brother to the woman who has just passed away. He shows up at their house in Phoenix and he lays it all out and says, family versus art, that's the conflict. And that conflict is always going to exist. And you're on one side of this. You're an artist. You're like your mother. You're like me. And if you're on that side, you may never find that family bliss, that domestic bliss. And so I was thinking about Spielberg there now as an adult working on this film and reckoning with that and thinking about the choices he's made and whether or not that's been true in his life. That's a scene. I talk about the emotional complexities of this film and the way I think Spielberg doesn't oversimplify anything where I would be critical a little bit is in a moment like that one or a sequence like that one with Judd Hirsch. There's a few others where that family versus art conflict is spelled out Mm. as if that's really the only reason Judd Hirsch is in the film at all. And it makes me think because not only is it Spielberg, but it's Tony Kushner again, here as a screenwriter makes me think I need to watch the film again to see if I'm oversimplifying it myself. And there is something added to that sequence. Otherwise it seems like he appears to lay out that conflict that I'm not sure we needed laid out in that way. I think it was already apparent. There's a scene later, Julia Butters, who's so good. The, the actress who is in that, famous scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood of Leonardo DiCaprio, where he does the best acting she's ever seen. Mm -hmm. She's one of his sisters, and she's really good in this scene, but maybe post-family revelations, some of the changes with her mom and dad, she's a little too knowing for a kid her age, maybe a little too wise, something a little too movie-like about that conversation. And I'll give you one more that... I just wish Spielberg had held back on a little bit, Josh. It's very early in the film. It's right after the greatest story ever told movie viewing experience. And then what does he do? He starts playing around with the trains and he's wrecking them like he sees in the movie. And the dad's upset about it because these are expensive trains and they're only supposed to be played with a certain way as he sees it. She, as they're in bed, is saying to her husband something about, 
I think playing Bach and what she misses about playing music. And Josh, in that moment, we have the same epiphany that she does. If you're paying close attention, mm-hmm. you have the same epiphany she does. And it's not just that she has it at that moment. It's the filmmaking. It holds on William's face. Clearly some kind of revelation. Revelation even more cemented as she looks at the train sitting on the nightstand. And then the next day, she comes down and talks to him and says, you know what? We're going to grab dad's camera and you can film that scene. She says, oh, he needs to control it. Right. That's the line. Yeah. The line. He's doing this. He's doing that with the toys. And now film is going to allow him to do this. It's the mechanism that will allow him to manage his fears and anxieties and the chaos that's swirling in his head. He can control it. All we needed to see, though, was the close up of her face. And here I am giving Steven Spielberg shooting and editing advice, but hold on her face, show her looking at the train, show her the next day telling him that he can film it. We didn't need her to actually say it. I think that's all fair. And I had the same experience you did with that line that she says. It's, you know, it crystallized for me. I don't remember exactly when, but at least a few beats before she says it, if not a few scenes before that. And yeah, that's. That's the tricky thing for a filmmaker, I imagine, is to know that line where you're going to trust the audience. And maybe the Spielberg movements that don't work for me across his career are those where I wish, as you said, he had trusted just a little bit more. Now, he's a popular filmmaker. I don't know if there's a connection to that. If you're understanding that you are not just making a movie for the people who can come out and immediately list all 38 movie references that you had in your film, but you're making a movie for people who might be going to see their fourth movie that year. If that, that's the, that's the level of filmmaking he's working at. I don't know if the, the ratio changes for you then where you feel like perhaps a little bit of an emphasis might be needed, but I imagine that's really difficult to know when to pull back and and when to go for it. Well, to close out our discussion here, you mentioned some of the performances in terms of the different incarnations of Sammy, but what about the two big performances here? And I don't mean big in terms of volume, though you might, Josh, or big in terms of the size of the performance. Dano and Michelle Williams, it seems, are getting a fair amount of acclaim, getting some of that Oscar talk. If you come across some of those prognosticators. Where do you stand specifically on Williams? Great. I mean, I think they're both really sturdy, Mm -hmm. which maybe sounds like a backhanded compliment, but I think that's what this movie needs. I don't know in the scheme of, you know, all the other performances this year, we'll get to that next week. But for the movie, I thought both delivered exactly what was needed and more complication as we were talking about Spielberg, sometimes wanting to spell things out more complication than sometimes you might get. In other Spielberg films, I think they're both willing to pursue the quote unquote selfish choices that their characters make fully, Mm -hmm. while in the other hand, fully expressing and holding the clear love, different types of love, I think, Mm -hmm. that they each have for their kids and for each other. I mean, I think this is a really, as you suggested, there, there is a different story. This is the story of this family. There's an entirely different story that could be told about this marriage. Right. There's a marriage story here as well. And that's not 
the entire task for Dano and Williams to perform that, but I think they dig enough into it to offer us something richer than the movie might have might have needed or we might have expected mm-hmm. to get. Yeah, I think that's all well said. I agree. Dano's performance is more subtle, just in that it is a meeker performance. He isn't the more dramatic character that the mother is, that Michelle Williams is playing. She does have a high wire act here. And I say that, I think it's an appropriate analogy for her character. You think about her playing and the artistry of that, her dancing and performing. She does everything with such fervor and deep feeling. And there's certainly a hint, or at least it seemed that way to me, Josh, that she isn't a character who just in different spots is mourning the loss of her mother or dealing with this difficult move and these marriage issues, but she potentially may have some other psychological issues that she's contending with. And I think Williams, she walks that wire. It's, it's a grand performance, but you said sturdy, I'd say steady, very steady performance as well. Yeah. I think in terms of, you know, the, the extra psychological distress she might be experiencing that early tornado scene you talked about mm-hmm. is very much a hint of that. And even Bert, you know, watching her grab the family, throw him in the car for this fun experience of, you know, his recognition of trying to figure out, do I step in here? What is happening here? Is this another performance, but mm-hmm. there's something really dangerous going on. Yeah. There's definitely an element of that to William's performance that I think she negotiates quite well. The Fablemans is out now in theaters everywhere, and it looks like it's coming to VOD on December 13th. If you see it, and agree or disagree with our thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. It's two Tilda Swintons for the price of one in Joanna Hogg's The Eternal Daughter. Our review is next, plus the listener's chance to vote for the movie of 2022 with the latest film spotting poll. Stay with us. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Say, will you tell me something? That uh, that lady sitting in there, who's the woman in the painting she's looking at? Oh, that's Carlotta. I find it in the catalog. Portrait of Carlotta. May I have this? Yes. Thank you. A clip there from the greatest film of all time, at least according to ballots cast back in 2012 for Sight & Sound Magazine's Once a Decade Greatest Films of All Time poll, Hitchcock's Vertigo displaced Citizen Kane for the first time since 1962. Josh, you may remember back in 52, the inaugural poll. Mm-hmm. Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves. Are you a plural thieves guy or do you tend to be a bicycle thief singular guy? 
oh my gosh, I should have an answer. The burning question to, of our to time. This, to this question, I, I am going to, I'm going to come up with that about 3.30 a.m. I will mm. wake up, sit bolt upright in my bed and decide. I was introduced to it as the bicycle thief and I'm I'm sticking with the bicycle thief singular for now. That was in the top spot in 52. Kane has been there ever since. And then in 2012, it was Vertigo. A lot of speculation online that this is the year where maybe it'll be 2001. Maybe it will be a new title. And of course, we're talking about this and we have to speculate because we said it earlier, we're recording this ahead of the release of the 2022 edition of the Sight and Sound Poll. But by the time people hear this, it will be out. They'll know the answer. They're in the future. They know what film sits atop this list. I, I'm just picturing right now, Scott Tobias, our, our good friend and colleague, just distraught that Shrek knocked everyone off and got all the way to the top. Surprise, out of nowhere. Yeah, that's only if you'd gotten a ballot to vote, Josh, and I know you didn't. So, <laughs> didn't happen. But next week, we'll have some thoughts on the new Sight and Sound ranking. Something you can hear us discuss right now. On November's bonus show, this is exclusively for members of the Film Spotting family. Our picks for the 10 greatest films of all time. Me, you, Josh, Michael Phillips from the Tribune joining us for that, and Sam Van Hallgren, our producer, who also takes on the role of host slash moderator for the whole affair. So we've got that. And also, if you haven't seen it already on our social media or on our website, we've got our ranking. Forget sight and sound. Who needs the British Film Institute? We've got the Film Spotting family. Over 320 members of the Film Spotting family submitted their ballots. And we've got our own Film Spotting family top 100. Quite respectable. No Shrek there either, I believe. No. Not, none on my top 10 or any of our personal top 10s. A good animation representation, though, I think among ours. I was happy to see that. But yeah, very strong list from film spotting family members that I think will be proud to hold up against the Sight and Sound one, whatever it might be. You can see the family top 100 for free. Go to our social media at Film Spotting at Larson on Film or go to filmspotting.net. But if you do want to hear... Our top tens from the four of us, you do have to be a film spotting family member for as little as five bucks a month. You get access to that November bonus show. You also get early ad free listening. You get discounted tickets to events. You also get, depending on your tier, access to the entire film spotting archive. That does now go all the way back to 2005 and episode number one of this show. More information about becoming a film spotting family member is at filmspottingfamily.com. Next week, in addition to some sight and sound talk, Adam and I are going to work through our Chicago Film Critics Association ballots. We usually focus, Adam, when we do this on our picks for performances of the year, sometimes influence each other, um, maybe hash out a few things we're wondering about or curious about. Do you have like 10 movies to watch between now and then? 20, 30? What's it looking I have like? At least 10, yeah. sadly. This is going to be just a frenetic seven days where I'm trying to fit in everything I possibly can. Actually, as we're taping this, my plan for tomorrow is three movies, <laughs> three movies in the theater. And I'm going to be doing two or three a day, probably at home on my couch, trying to catch up with screeners ahead of our voting. Here's the challenge, though. Even before I do all of that, I started sketching out my list. There's always one supporting category that is a little light. I don't know why. It's not always 
actress. It's not always actor, but it's always one that's a little light and it's always one that's really heavy. And this year, as I sit right now, I'm sure it will round out as I fit in some more movies here scrambling over the next week. But right now, Best Supporting Actor, I've got three shoe-ins and that's about it. Whereas Best Supporting Actress, I've got five that feel like locks, three others that I'd love to fit into that top five, and then at least three others that probably deserve to be in the conversation. I was in a similar place with the supporting category. So earlier this week, I think it was, yeah, I, I put out on Twitter a request and on Facebook at Larson on Film and just ask folks, what is what is one supporting turn that hasn't been getting a lot of the usual buzz? I got some really good feedback from that. So track that down might add a couple to your list. And if you've got picks for your favorite performances of the year, especially if it's one or two that you think we might overlook, let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. We are getting to the end of the year, and that means that we're going to have a wrap party in January. Close out the year in cinema. You'll have heard our favorite performances. You'll have heard our top 10 films of the year. But what about our favorite scenes of the year, our favorite opening moments, our funniest moments, and more? We're going to reveal those live Saturday, January 14th at the Bell House in Brooklyn, 8 p.m. Got some great guests lined up, Josh. Podcasting favorites, Dana Stevens, Griffin Newman, Matt Singer, and Allison Wilmore, formerly of Film Spotting SVU. They're going to all be on hand. They're going to help us with a category each. And if you want to come out and have some fun with us, be part of the VIP experience beforehand, hang out with those great folks. Filmspotting.net slash events is where you can get ticket information. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they've got a bonus show for you. Let's talk about video stores and the VHS era. So a little reminiscing from the next picture show folks there. Next week, they'll be back to business as usual with a new pairing. They're going to look at Bones and All with Terrence Malick's mm. Badlands. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. I read your college essay. You clearly love Sacramento. I do. You write about Sacramento so affectionately and with such care. Well, I was just describing it. Well, it comes across as love. Sure. I guess I pay attention. Don't you think maybe they are the same thing? Love and attention. I love any transition that includes Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird. It's time for some poll results. Gerwig herself from the lovely city of Sacramento and a mid-90s graduate of a Catholic high school. Inspired by the Fablemans, we asked you about the best autobiographical films of the last 10 years. The question was, who was made the best autobiographical film or films of the last decade? Josh, the options we gave our audience were Pedro Almodovar with 2019's Pain and Glory, Lee Isaac Chung, 2020's Minari, Alfonso Coran with 2018's Roma, Gerwig and Lady Bird, Joanna Hogg, 2019's The Souvenir, last year's The Souvenir Part 2. You can actually add in a movie we're going to talk about in a moment, The Eternal Daughter. Richard Linklater, we got Boyhood, some semi-autobiographical elements there, and the heavily autobiographical Apollo 10.5 from earlier this year. Finally, if you didn't like any of those choices, you could go with Other. How did it come out? Other did get last place with 2%. Joanna Hogg 
only 4%. So I'm glad we're giving the eternal daughter some attention and give some more attention to her as well later in this show. Lee Isaac Chung received 5% of the vote, Pedro Almodovar 7%, and then a jump up here for Alfonso Cuaron, who was tied with our second place finisher, Richard Linklater. Also 23%. Greta Gerwig perhaps overtaking Richard Linklater in film spotting nation's Mm -hmm. ranking of beloved filmmakers because she took this 36% of the vote. Here's Alex Anir. And it's funny, you know, tone doesn't come through in email. You might read this first sentence differently than me. Why don't you actually read the first sentence and then I'll give you my rendering of it. This is Alex Anir. All right, here's Alex. At first glance, I thought the first option was Michael Bay's Pain and Gain, and that would have been just great. Yeah, see, here's mine. At first glance, I thought the first option was Michael Bay's Pain and Gain, and that would have been just great. No, it just doesn't sound right to me. Yeah, I think Alex is angry at the thought. (laughs) Well, he continues, have to go boyhood here, which to me is among the true cinematic watermarks this century. See, Alex thinks like I do, Josh. Wes M. I voted for Roma because it's the best movie on the list and it happens to be autobiographical. However, from the standpoint of showing how the experiences of one's life impact and shine through their art, I think it has to be pain and glory, which is just more effective at giving me what I expect from an autobiographical film. Okay, I like that distinction. We also heard from Jeremy Lawfrey. I went with Hogs, The Souvenir, Parts 1 and 2, out of sheer recency bias. How else can you choose from this list of six of some of the world's greatest working filmmakers? Outside of the convenience of having seen them both recently, Hogs' films went out for me in two respects. First, she is unafraid of showing herself as the subject in a poor or compromising light. Second, Part 2's experimental and metatextual aspects are just breathtaking. I haven't seen a better exploration of the autobiographical filmmaking process than the stunning conclusion of the film which utilizes film form in a heart-stopping dreamlike sequence as an act of reclamation, confrontation, and healing. Here's Darren going with Other. Like other films on this list, I'm not sure 20th Century Women, the Mike Mills film, is strictly autobiographical, but it is projected through a nostalgic, reflective haze that at least feels very autobiographical. Plus, I'll take advantage of any opportunity to promote this under-discussed gem. More 20th century women love from Lisa Nelson here. I'm pretty sure Sam is enjoying this. We're aware is 20th century women on this list. No director autobiographical film hit me harder. Inspired by Mills's wish to document what his now deceased mother was like for his 21st century son. This film is a testament to anyone who left beloved parents, family, or friends behind in a previous century, decade, or year. Finally, Kent Graham says, I went with Flea, directed by Jonas Poor Rasmussen. It's not autobiographical from Rasmussen's life, but his friend, Amin Nawabi, who co-wrote the screenplay and voices himself in this animated documentary about the harrowing challenges he faced escaping from his birth country of Afghanistan as a youth. Incredibly powerful and affecting. And Tai Kim concurs, saying Flea, hands down. It is indicative, Josh, of the way time (laughs) feels just so jarring. And I have no sense of how many years have passed. I had to look up when flea came out because I was sure it was two or three years ago at least. Yeah, That's what I was thinking. It's a 2021 film. Oh, wow. It was just last year. Flea, my most moving moment of the year. Speaking of rap parties, I think was from the movie flea. Great choice there. I'm really glad that got some right in love. Thanks to everyone who voted and left a comment. Our new poll is a perennial in the category of deeply flawed polls. Our top 10 films of the year, those are fast approaching. And so 
even though it is only early December at this point, and there's still so much all of us have to see and so much to be released, we are contractually obligated to gauge you on this topic. What is the best film of the year? We are playing with the phrasing a little bit to try to deter some of the deeply flawed criticism, and we're putting it to you this way. What is the film of the year as of today? So let's say as of the first few days of December, we recognize there's a month to go. People have to catch up with a lot. Big releases yet to come. But as of right now, where's your head at? These are the options we're giving you. Charlotte Wells, After Sun, Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inisharan, Park Chanuk's Decision to Leave, The Daniels, Everything Everywhere, All at Once, Spielberg's The Fablemans, Jordan Peele's Nope, S.S. Rajamuli's RRR, Todd Field's Tar, and one more here. Top Gun Maverick. We are going to offer the other option as well. I can't believe 1986 Top Gun lover me is going to be this much of an elitist here, but I'm just saying if you're voting for Top Gun Maverick in this poll against some of those other options, when there might be, as of right now, five of those titles probably in my top 10, Josh, or at least vying for a spot, then maybe you just haven't seen enough films this year. Middle school, you just lost his, what do you lose? Swings, stripes, you lose, something, something has been aggressively ripped uh-huh. off your tan shirt. Yes. <laughs> Other does typically fairly well in this poll, but at least in early voting, we have four movies ahead of the field. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Tar, the Banshees of Inner Sharon, and a bunch of people who now think I'm a jerk. <laughs> Yeah, you might just want to like quietly back out of the room in the anti-Maverick talk, Adam. I should have read that part first. You're not going to win that one. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment. And in your comment, you can say something negative about me at filmspotting.net. You brought her here. Memories flood back in this place. Quietly in the evening, through the building and on the grounds. Hello? And I suppose it is a way of staying in touch. That's from the trailer for Joanna Hogg's The Eternal Daughter. Hogg, the director of The Souvenir and The Souvenir Part 2, a pair of acclaimed films in which she looked back at her own life as a young film student. Those movies starred Honor Swinton Byrne as the Hogg stand-in Julie. Byrne is the daughter of Tilda Swinton, who played Julie's mother, Rosalind. I hope you're keeping up with all this in those films. And now here we have Hogg's Eternal Daughter, which stars Swinton as the adult Julie and as her elderly mother. But it's also kind of a ghost story. Josh, what's your take on the Eternal Daughter? I I would, especially for those who have not seen this souvenir or the souvenir part two, just say, yes, it's a ghost story and not get worried about all that other stuff because you really don't need to know it. This, This stands on its own, even though... It's cemented for me that Hogg is really at the top of the line for filmmakers who know how to do personal cinema in a way that I at least find incredibly arresting. There is the risk of navel-gazing sentimentality with this subgenre, and Hogg wants nothing to do with that. Yeah. There is such um self-laceration is too much of a strong term to say what she's doing here, but there's something of maybe like a like a scab scratching honesty that she has about not only her past or her experiences, but where she is 
right now in this moment, thinking about it and ruminating on it um, and processing it. It's almost like all those things are happening at once. And just as when you're arguing with yourself about your past and your memories, you don't try to paint a pretty picture, right? You're, you're really wrestling with, yes, some of the good things, but also the bad things and making sense of it all. That's what Hogg is doing on screen. And what made for me the eternal daughter to be particularly interesting is that there is this genre element where you have this mother and daughter at this apparently empty English estate turned hotel that there's strange lighting, there's fog all day and all night, there are noises going on, and they wonder if they're alone. They're in a purgatory, essentially. It's almost more of a purgatorial experience than a ghost story, mm-hmm. and we can have some you know, fun puzzling it out, even as the central relationship between these two is what the heart of this story is. So it's not a ghost story like a boo ghost story, but it has some of those formal elements that add a level of interest that's different from the souvenir films, but is really, again, about a Joanna Hogg stand-in wrestling, doing Mm -hmm. some interior deep wrestling about her past and how it's led her to where she is and giving us a peek at it. The story here is Swinton as daughter and mother arriving at what I think is a Welsh estate that the mother had lived in as a child. And the sense is that they're trying to spend some time together, especially as the mother is getting up in years. But the daughter also has, I won't say nefarious intentions, though she as a filmmaker does some things or exhibits certain behavior that might suggest even she feels that way about what she's about to be engaged in. But she's there to also mine her own past and her mother's past, I should say specifically, for material. She's making a film. So we're right in lockstep here with the Fablemans. We're keeping the self-reflexivity theme going. We've got filmmaker kids haunted by their parents. I do think it is a really good companion in some ways a counter to Spielberg's film in that we see Spielberg as the author going through his past and his traumas and rendering it on screen in a way that he doesn't seem to have any guilt about or any real conflict about that's that's there for the taking. And as I was alluding to earlier, one of the most fascinating elements of this film is the way we see Julie getting out that tape recorder. You know, she's got her phone out and she's recording things her mother is saying and she's doing it on the slide. Yeah, that's the nefarious part. That right? is right. She doesn't want her mother to know you. You do as a filmmaker, as an autobiographical filmmaker. You have to be a bit of a thief. You have to be willing to steal and to transform some of these stories. And again, I think that's one of the things this movie wants to really wrestle with and ask the question, not is it ethical in the sense that she's taking stories from someone else is if she she heard something and is now actually stealing it and owes somebody something. It's not that it's about the messiness of the relationship that she has with her mother, the way she as an artist seems incapable of maybe producing her own art that can be separate from who she is as a daughter, can be separate from who she is as a daughter to this mother. And so she's relying on her as an artist in a way that 
maybe she has a little bit of guilt about. And of course, maybe Joanna Hogg then as the filmmaker, as the author, shares some of that guilt and wants to explore that here through these characters. So how did it work for you to have Swinton playing both of them? Because it's a bold stroke. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a lot of ways, the souvenir part two, especially was experimental towards the end with its metatextual use of images and movies within movies and all that stuff. The Eternal Daughter is a little more straightforward, though it does have some aesthetic elements that are striking, rooted again in the ghost genre. But otherwise, the boldest formal choice is to have Tilda Swinton play both of these roles. So was it effective for you? Yeah, it ended up being effective for Mm, me. mm -hmm. And that's because early on, I did find it a bit distracting in a way that I assumed anyway it wasn't supposed to be. It was clearly an approach that Hogg took, whether out of practicality, again, I'm giving you my mindset as the film is opening and I'm seeing these shots and I'm recognizing that, oh, they're never going to try to fool us, that she's not playing both roles. We're always going to see her as the daughter or mother in a single shot. If they're talking to each other, they're going to cross cut between them. We're never going to fake it and have another actress or a stand-in playing one of the roles, not even over-the-shoulder type shots. It's always single shots, and it was a little bit distracting at first, and it seemed a little bit disconnected, and I'm sitting there as a viewer not paying attention so much to the story or the characters. I'm thinking about this and this choice, and is this actually a DIY kind of a thing, whether it was out of budgetary needs or something else where Hogg really wanted to be deliberate about this choice and even perhaps call attention to it. And as the full picture, as the whole story comes more into focus, let's say that disconnect for me started to feel appropriate. Yes. And it also sets up a shot later Mm -hmm. that takes on much greater emotional resonance because of that choice. Yeah. In retrospect, it's the only way. It's the only way. It should have been done. But I I agree with you. My experience was similar, especially because of the shot selections. And the other thing, though, I think eventually it worked for me is to double down on the claustrophobia that's a part of this movie. I think the shots themselves, as you describe them, these single shots of one person in the frame, for, for some reason to me, makes me feel constrained and confined. There's also a loneliness element to it that amplifies the loneliness of this apparently empty hotel. Although we should say there are two other people we meet, the very difficult desk manager, delightfully played by <laughs> Carly Sophia Davies, and then a kindly employee, a groundskeeper, I think he is, mostly Joseph Mydell. They have small parts that are very effective, release a little bit of the pressure yes. in different ways. But yeah, there's claustrophobia otherwise that having Swinton be the only face you see, that helps to emphasize mm. that element of the movie as well. Yeah. That ghost story element we touched on. One of the strengths of this movie is the way it sneakily and suggestively subverts our expectations of a ghost story. There are noises coming from upstairs. There are ghostly presences, it seems, in certain rooms in the hotel. She's seeing things. But none of those play out as expected. None of those are there 
to frighten us, really, to terrify us, certainly to get any kind of jump scare out of us. They all function to create this eerie dream space mm-hmm. <laughs> within which Julie finds herself. And you mentioned the groundskeeper. One of the moments where you're right, we've only met one other person at this point, the woman at the desk, and she's gone. And the daughter, Julie, the night before, I think, goes through a door that maybe she's not supposed to. It's for employees only, but she's looking around and getting a feel for the place or whatever. And then this next night, she does it again. And as she turns to go out, there's this figure, this tall man. It's it's ominous. That is a moment where at least I, as a viewer, kind of did jump a little bit or you mm-hmm. gasp and you think, oh, this is, you know, this is it. This is where she's coming across this apparition. She's going to have some type of encounter with this ghost. No, it's really just the groundskeeper. Right. <laughs> he's there. He's really there. And he's, he's a nice guy too. He's incredibly nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it never goes full shining, right? There's a no, lot of the shining in this. Uh, the setting, the idea of a writer struggling to get something down on paper and family dynamics playing an instrumental role mm-hmm. in that difficulty. So you can see, you know, little um, flickers of The Shining, but the movie never really pushes it quite that far. It's not that kind of film. It doesn't want to be. It doesn't need to be. It's something entirely else while using those elements in its favor. The Eternal Daughter is currently playing in limited release. It's also available to rent on demand. If you see it, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Feedback at filmspotting.net. One more film we want to cover here, Adam, before we go. Senior. So that's S-R period. This is a documentary portrait of director Robert Downey Sr. Yeah. Downey passed away last year at age 85. He's best known for his 1969 counterculture comedy, Putney Swope. And he's also, of course, the father of Robert Downey Jr., who does feature prominently in the film along with his dad. It's directed by Chris Smith, best known for American Movie. Smith also made the Fire Festival doc Fire and the 2017 doc Jim and Andy the Great Beyond about Jim Carrey's portrayal of Andy Kaufman in Man on the Moon. So, Adam, did you know much about Robert Downey Sr. before you saw this? I didn't know much at all. I think I knew probably, I'm going to speculate and say probably about as much as you do, Josh, or a lot of people who come to this documentary. You've heard of Putney Swope. I know about Robert Downey Sr., but mainly through knowing about Robert Downey Jr. and discovering that, oh, his dad was this irreverent filmmaker, this kind of counterculture subversive. But otherwise, I have not seen still to this day any of his films. And I do think that one of the real intentions, one of the purposes of this film is to draw attention to him as a filmmaker and the impact that he had on culture and on cinema. Paul Thomas Anderson plays a bit of a role in this movie for a long time. He just followed senior around with a camera, loved his films, was fascinated by him as an artist and as a person. He's got his supporters out there and Certainly after watching this film, I came away thinking, okay, I'm not sure he's jumping up to the top 10 of our list of marathon topics, Mm. Josh, but we should think about it. We should definitely think about it. Have you seen any of Grandpa's movies? No, why? Because they're awesome. Do you want to see them someday? Do people try to ascribe meaning to your movies? Oh, my God. I hope not. 
what do we want to talk about? Everything. Oh, boy. I'm very interested in who my dad is just in the here and now. No one knows the hour and the day. We never know how much time we have with each other. So who is this guy? I'll never know. A couple of titles I had in mind as I was watching Senior were Dick Johnson is Dead and... The new Elvis Mitchell documentary, is that black enough for you that I know we both recently caught up with? And I mentioned that film only because, as I just suggested, we're getting a cinematic history lesson here. These are films that were made during a similar period as a lot of the films that Elvis is covering in that documentary on Netflix. The counterculture element, these anti-establishment films, Putney Swope being the seminal one. And you've got Chris Smith here, but you've also got Robert Downey Jr. taking on this role of co-conspirator, collaborator, co-director in a way, who's acknowledging the fact that his father is sick. We don't discover that or we don't hear about it until maybe about a half an hour into the film, but he does have Parkinson's. So this is the Dick Johnson is dead element. Mm -hmm. And he is reckoning with this, his inevitable decline in death. And he's developed this construct of a movie as a means to interrogate his father. And I mean that in a gentle way, like to be able to ask him things he wouldn't normally be able to ask him. It's an excuse. The artifice of it allows him to probe and try to get his father to open up about things that they haven't touched on. This is going to be his chance to do it. It's also an excuse just to spend more time with his father. And it is a chance to hail his father, to get more people familiar with his work. And it's a movie that takes on the form of its subject. It's it's irreverent. At least when it comes to its form, it's chaotic. It's constantly kind of veering in new directions and introducing new ideas the same way it suggests a Robert Downey Sr. film would, but not in a way that compromises its its depth or any of the emotional resonance of it. There's an element, too, of the construct, Josh, that I don't think totally pays off, but I don't think it it needs to. Once you recognize that that's not what the movie's trying to do, I was okay with it. And that is seniors making his own version of the film at the same time Chris Smith and Robert Downey Jr. are making their own version of the film. Hmm. And the way that's integrated doesn't really factor into the final film, all the work that he's put in with his own editor on this version. It's not like we see that entire version play out. We really just see snippets of it, but it serves a larger emotional purpose for the film. And it, has a real practical function, which is that's really the only way senior was going to do it is if he could tell his own version of it. And the fact that they let him play along in that way, that they understood that they would get the most out of him by letting him be him and being him means being a filmmaker and coming up with these ideas and going off on these creative whims. They had to indulge that to tell a truly authentic portrait of Robert Downey senior. That is Senior, which comes exclusively to Netflix this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with Adam's thoughts, let us know at feedback at filmspotting.net. That is our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, you can find Adam at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at the website, filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current poll. We're asking, what is the film of 2022? Also on the website, you can find show t-shirts and other merchandise. Go to filmspotting.net slash shop. 
out in limited release. Some of that homework I have to do. White Noise, Noah Baumbach's adaptation of the Don DeLillo novel. It stars Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig. That comes to Netflix at the end of December. On digital, you can see a movie we both recommend, The Eternal Daughter from Joanna Hogg. That's in theaters and on VOD and Senior, also recommended by me on Netflix. In wide release, you can see Violent Night. David Harbour as Santa telling us it's time for some season's beatings. This is a movie you need to see so badly, Josh. Is that technically a pun? Because I kind of like it. (laughs) Next week, we will share our favorite lead and supporting performances of the year. And we will try to talk each other into or out of certain picks for our Chicago Film Critics Association end of year ballots. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive, which is something, it goes back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.